Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It's Wednesday on the Three Martini Lunch, and we're very glad that you are here. Grab the stool. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis to walk through today. And, Jim, our good martini is pretty darn similar to a good martini we had last week. But it definitely has uh, an unpleasant aftertaste to it. And that, once again, relates to Attorney General Bill Barr, who at least on the surface seems to be getting more and more exasperated with President Trump's tweets, uh, getting involved, whether it's the Roger Stone case or uh, what he thinks is uh, the Justice Department's uh, role in the whole 2016 fiasco. But uh, this is uh, New York Magazine. The president could lose one of his most powerful advocates within the executive branch if he keeps misusing one of the things he loves most. According to administration officials who spoke with The Washington Post, Attorney General William Barr has told people close to Trump that he's considering resigning If the president continues to tweet about ongoing investigations conducted by the Department of Justice, quote, he has his limits, unquote. One person familiar with Barr's thinking told The Post. Uh, Then the story goes on to talk about Barr with uh, Pierre Thomas of ABC News saying that Trump's tweets uh, make it impossible for him to do his job. The president has still tweeted out about the Stone case and other things. And uh, he's at least letting it be known that he's willing to resign if this doesn't change. Barr's critics, of course, think this is all a bluff, just designed to create a facade of independence from the president. And he's really just doing Trump's bidding day by day. So, uh, Jim, I guess uh, the the critics are only going to be happy if they get rid of the guy. Big surprise. But uh, I'm sure the the attorney general is also frustrated that the president didn't take his hint. So is this going to be effective? Yeah, I mean, like this, this is a good martini in the sense that someone in the Trump inner circle is speaking very bluntly to the president about the consequences of his actions. And the president has largely, you know, escaped most of the worst consequences for those actions. His 2016 campaign, you know, broke all the rules and he won. Most of us would argue a big portion of that is because he was running against Hillary Clinton. But, you know, He governed the way he wanted, and he lost the House of Representatives in 2018. He kept talking about some red wave that was going to come. He did do well in the the Senate races, which was the good news. But, you know, he found himself with the Democratic House. Um, John Kelly had said to him, if you keep going the way you're going to go, you're going to get impeached. Lo and behold, he ended up impeached. But because there were enough Republicans in the Senate, he survived. Trump, you know, he, he berated Jeff Sessions on Twitter instead of just calling him to his office and saying, don't do this or do that. Trump just wants to enjoys venting his spleen on anything that pops into his mind about anything without any potential, like, what could the ramifications of this be? And there have been multiple times lawyers for the Justice Department and lawyers for the administration have found what they're trying to argue in front of a, a judge more complicated because the president has jumped on Twitter and started ranting and raving about everything that irked him. If you're trying to win a court case, don't demonize the judge. Don't do that. Until the judge, until you know for certain, you're never going to go back in front of that judge again. And by the way, when you're the administration, chances are at some point you're going to do that. Trump doesn't have any of this impulse control. And by and large, he's escaped the worst, uh, worst potential consequences of this. If, if Barr decides to leave, now we've got a really bad consequence of this. And you shouldn't come to, have to come to this point. Uh, the, you know, as my boss, Rich Lowry, keeps laying out, the president ought to think long and hard about what his presidency looks like when even Barr walks away and says, I can't work with this guy. 
He, he just won't listen. He doesn't realize how much he's complicating what we're trying to do here. I've repeatedly asked him not to tweet about what the stuff sort of things I'm working on, ongoing court cases and stuff like that. He, he thinks he's, you know, he, he basically, the President Trump sees his job as being like a, a TV commentator. The problem is he's not an outsider anymore. He's the head of the executive branch. He has to start thinking about how can, he, he's the head coach. He has to think about how can I help my team win instead of my team is there to help me win. And it's, it's deeply frustrating. I hope the president takes this warning to heart. Um, I think, it, you know, this, this good martini could very quickly turn into a very bad martini if Barr walks away from the administration. But, you know, I, I'm sure Barr feels like he's asked every conceivable way, Mr. President, help me help you, because right now you're hurting me, which put me in a situation where I can't help you. Has he put himself in a position, though, of not having a lot of options because he's basically let it be known, Mr. President, if you keep doing this, I can't do my job. Mr. President, if you keep doing this, I might have to resign. Chances are the president's going to keep doing it. So if so, does he actually resign or does he stay there and give more fuel to his critics that this was all a big bluff? Yeah, I, I, my suspicion is that Barr is, doesn't bluff very much. These reports are not coming out by accident. I don't think this is a mere matter of Barr blowing off steam. And maybe they are. Maybe, maybe in the end, this is just... Barr having a bad couple of days and being frustrated and, and deciding to vent, vent it all out. But my suspicion is that Barr, would, like, this is pretty extraordinary. You don't usually see the attorney general taking these kinds of comments and these kinds of reports leaking. So I think he means it. And I think the day Barr leaves the administration, when you think about it, like up until last Wednesday, I, you and I talked about how Lou Dobbs had, you know, done a, a complete 180, you know, and, and all of a sudden he was part of the deep state. He, he got the full John Bolton treatment, right? He was the most, he was the most brilliant choice possible. And then he was a, a stumble bum idiot the moment he left the administration. The day Bars leaves the presidency and says, Mr. President, I'm sorry, I just can't work under these circumstances. It might get people who looked at Barr and said, and recognized the good job he was doing for the administration in a lot of these tough fights. And to get him walk away, that might be the sort of thing where gets enough people in the president's circle who otherwise like the president to say, you know, Mr. President, we, we needed Barr. Barr was really good. Barr was, you know, I know how you're very unhappy with, with Sessions. Barr was, was the tough guy you wanted. You wanted your, your wartime consigliere. Barr was that guy. He asked you to stop tweeting about something. And because you couldn't, you, you know, he, he felt the need to walk away. It would be an enormous unforced error on the part of the administration. At least one more warning shot across the bow if uh, if you want to keep your attorney general. That, I guess that's the good news. He's, he's trying to. He's trying. Well, I mean, if, if Trump takes the lesson, then this takes away one, you know, then, then you know, this, this is one less headache he has to worry about. If he doesn't, then he's got to find a new attorney general in an election year and deal with the perceptions of this next one will be a yes man. Like, like left, right and center. Everybody agrees. Barr is really good at his job. He's very competent, very bright, knows what he's doing at DOJ. The big protest from President Trump towards the Stone case was that seven to nine years was too much. We'll see what happens tomorrow with the sentencing. Uh, right in the middle of seven to nine years, Jim, is eight years. That's how long Rod Blagojevich, roughly, has been in prison for his myriad of convictions, some of which were related to trying to sell the Obama Senate seat, which was vacated when, of course, Obama was elected president. There are other things in there, too, various uh, examples of corruption, uh, trying to shake down a children's hospital and all sorts of other wonderful things. And uh, we talked in the past about how Trump was flirting with the idea of commuting Blagojevich's sentence. Uh, he was talked off the ledge a couple of times on that, uh, most effectively, I think, by the Republicans in the Illinois congressional delegation. This time, however, 
they were not so successful. Rod Blagojevich has had his sentence commuted. And if you don't remember what happened uh, 12 years ago, shortly after the 2008 election, this is what the feds got on tape from then-Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich about what he wanted to do uh, with the vacated Senate seat and how he expected to fill it. I've got this thing, and it's golden. And I'm just not giving it up for nothing. I'm not going to do it. And, and I can always parachute, use it and parachute me there. All right. So uh, clearly uh, a guy who's on the up and up. Uh, but in the end, uh, the president deciding to commute Blagojevich's sentence. Uh, he's on the tarmac here. Might be a little bit hard to hear. But here's the president's detailed explanation about why he did this. He served eight years in jail. A long time. And uh, I watched his wife on television. I don't know him very well. I met him a couple of times. He was on well, the apprentice years ago. Seems like a very nice person. Don't know him, but he uh, served eight years in jail. So he served eight years in jail. He saw Blagojevich's wife on television, and while he doesn't really know him, he seems like a nice person. Well, Blagojevich is out, and folks caught up with him at the airport. And uh, one thing you would hope for, Jim, uh, for someone who's been pardoned or had their sentence commuted, is uh, remorse. You know what? I did it. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. Did we get that from Blagojevich? And no. And yeah, I made a whole bunch of mistakes, but I didn't break any laws. I crossed no lines. And the things I talked about doing were legal. And this was routine politics. And the people that did it are the ones who broke the laws and the ones who, frankly, should meet and face some accountability. Didn't break any laws. Uh, it's routine politics. And the people who did this to me are the ones who should face justice. So, uh, Jim, a whole bunch of other uh, pardons and commutations there. But this is the one getting the attention. Republicans tried to talk him out of this, but no such luck. You know, uh, you forgot the other comment that he made there, Greg, which is that this commutation is bleeping golden. <laughs> and uh, I can sell this off to any old guy off the street for a lot of money. So thank you, Mr. President. That gave you know, I'm making that up, but that's in keeping with his other comments. Mr. President, Rod Blagojevich is not a very nice person. The fascinating thing is that sometimes when you see Trump do something, you can say, okay, well, this helps him with this group, or that helps him. You know, okay, this is thinking ahead to 2020. This is, you know, playing to support in this demographic or this group or something like that, or he thinks he's going to get a good... First of all, you notice there are no good headlines that come out of this. There are other presidential commutations. You know, Alice Johnson comes to line. You know, you can commute sentences and get a lot of you know, people say, hey, this is a good case for mercy. This is a good case where someone was sentenced to something much harsher than their crimes actually uh, uh, deserved. This is a person who deserves a second chance. This is somebody who has learned their lesson and is ready to become a helpful, you know, useful, morally upstanding member of society. Uh, that we as a society believe in redemption and believe in second chances. And this, this is someone who has earned it. This is not someone who's earned it. And the fascinating thing is like the people who are most up in arms about this are Illinois Republicans. This was right before you and I started doing our podcast. I was writing and you were doing Radio America stuff. We hated Rod Blagojevich and we had good reason to hate Rod Blagojevich. There were a bunch of, look, other corrupt Illinois Democrats hated Rod Blagojevich. <laughs> and they hated him because he did it like, he did it really, like, even by the standards of corruption, he was over, it was beyond the pale. Right? He was blatant, open, uh, 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 you know, transparent about it, clearly saw his powers as governor as a way to make money. Um, it, it's straight up corruption. And so Trump is going to, at some point in 2020, Trump's going to run around saying, I, I drained the swamp. I mean, maybe you can make the argument that eight years in jail is enough time. I don't know if it is, but you could say, all right, you can make an argument of does the sentence fit the crime? 
But you know, nothing indicates, as you said, is, from those comments, he, he indicates no remorse, no recognition that what he did was wrong. He's flat out in denial that what he did was illegal. I think most people would have picked that up at the jury decision. Don't you think, Greg? <laughs> right. That's your first clue that things were not in keeping with either the spirit or the letter of the law. And is just one of those things where the, you know, the only discernible reasoning here is that he was on a Celebrity Apprentice because he was a desperate uh, suck up to any celebrity and he just wanted to be out in, in the public eye. And now Trump happens to be in this situation. Again, if everybody on your staff says, Mr. President, this is a bad idea, you should at least try listening to them. You should at least hear them out, at least consider the situation. Because what does this get Trump other than, hey, Rod really owes me a favor? That's going to come in, it's really going to come in handy, Mr. President. Wow. So many things I could say here. First of all, there's a clip floating around yesterday about uh, the moment Rod Blagojevich was fired from The Apprentice because he was the project leader and didn't do adequate Harry Potter research for whatever the project was for his team that day. Um, And Aaron Burnett, of all people, was uh, sitting to Trump's side as one of his guest advisors. So things have changed a little bit. You you spotlighted that on on Twitter, Greg. Like, so... Erin Burnett, you know, I, I you know don't have a strong opinion of one way or the other. She always seemed nice enough on uh, on on it's CNN, right? CNN now, I think she was CNBC at the time. That's right. Okay, so you're kind of left scratching your head, like when people are like, "Good heavens, how did Americans not recognize that Donald Trump was a hate mongering, <laughs> xenophobic monster who belongs nowhere near?" Do you think the folks like Erin Burnett were doing his show? <laughs> <laughs> and acted like he was, you know, and he was hosting Saturday Night Live and he's hanging out with Jimmy Fallon. Like, you know, they don't ask David Duke to host Saturday Night Live, right? <laughs> CNBC anchors do not appear on the shows of, you know, Louis Farrakhan. You know, like he was a very mainstream pop culture figure long before the started running for president, Greg. That's exactly That's right. A vivid example of that. And his boss at NBC at the time was a guy named Jeff Zucker, who <laughs> now that yes. he runs CNN, hates his guts, although it's yeah. good for ratings, I guess. So let's just hope Lugovic doesn't end up at the convention. That's that's my only yeah. uh, hope at this point. He says he's a Trumpocrat hey, now. Hey, you know, look, if, if, first of all, if he gets that speaking gig, that is a bleeping valuable thing there, Greg. <laughs> oh, man. Auctioning off his uh, his messaging to the highest bidder. Well, yeah, that could be an awkward moment at the Republican convention. But the Democratic convention uh, certainly is on the path to becoming quite adventurous as well, particularly if there's no one with the majority of delegates by the time they get to Milwaukee this summer. And that's already got some left-leaning academics wringing their hands about this. We're only two contests in here, people, so let's see how this shakes out. Uh, We're not guaranteed a train wreck in Milwaukee, but it's certainly... Not out of the question. Julia Azari is an associate professor and the assistant chair in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. And she's already worried about what's going to happen with the Democrats. I don't know, Jim, if this is the Julia from the Obama reelection video that didn't have any pupils in her eyeballs on the animated thing there where the government takes care of her from cradle to grave. But um, she has now decided that the Democratic uh, primary process needs to be changed. She's worried that Sanders is ahead in popular votes. Buttigieg right now leads the delegate count. So here is her theory. The current process is clearly flawed, but what would be better? Finding an answer means thinking about the purpose of presidential nominations and about how the existing system falls short. It will require swimming against the tide of how we've thought about nominations for decades as a contest between everyday voters and elites or as a smaller version of a general election. A better primary system would empower elites to bargain and make decisions instructed by voters. So she's in favor 
of preference primaries. I believe the state of Maine already does this, where you don't just vote for the person you want. You rank everyone on the ballot in the order that you would like them uh, to be ranked in terms of your preferences. And then somehow that uh, tweaks the results and gets you your ultimate winner. The best part about this, though, Jim, is that the Washington Post has this opinion piece right under their uh, ominous uh, subhead, Democracy Dies in Darkness, with the opinion headline, It's Time to Give the Elites a Bigger Say in Choosing the President. (laughs) You know, Greg, I don't know about you. I'm just glad that somebody at the Washington Post is finally willing to stand up for America's true victims, the elites. (laughs) They don't get nearly enough say in who gets to be president. They don't get nearly enough say in, in... what gets discussed in our politics, what gets focused upon. Um, Look, when you want to look at the downtrodden, when you want to look at the people who really don't have their voices heard, I think it's the elites and probably none more than Democratic office holders, really. They are the ones who have uh, the most obstacles in their way. Uh, The other thing is like, so, so they want to have ranked choice voting where in addition, you don't just go there and just say, oh, I want this one. You have to say, well, I want this one the most and this one the second most. And I guess it would stop at three or do you have to rank everybody? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Because at that point, you're like, well, you know, do I want Steyer as my fifth or is Gabbard still in it? Do I put her up to fifth and Steyer's back? You know, like, look, first of all, this is the kind of attention and the amount of energy and, and just mental real estate to be out that really should only be focused to the really important things in life. Right? I, I don't know about you. For me, it's mock drafts. <laughs> um, and where I start thinking about it, who should the Jets take in the sixth and seventh round of these college football players I've never heard of, you know, um, the, the <laughs> democracy dies in darkness. It also gets strangled by complicated voting systems. <laughs> we just had an Iowa caucus that went down in flames because people couldn't do math. Do you really want to give people, give everybody voter like, wait, wait, wait I, I, I didn't, I didn't want him to be my third choice. I wanted him to be my second choice. You know, one of the few advantages, uh, in fact, by the way, this is a, you know, people could say this would all going to ranked choice voting would change the way the, 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 all these primaries shake out. Yes, indeed. Because yeah, it's possible you might like three or four of these candidates. Maybe you like all of them. Maybe you like, you know, a handful of them, but you know, in, in American democracy, both in the primary and in the general election, you have to pick one unless it's like a city council and you have to vote for three or something like that. You have to say this person I think is the best person for the job. And it doesn't, you know, second only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, as they say that to me, that's a beauty of the system, right? That is a, it forces you to make a decision and maybe some people don't like that, but the idea, because then you get turned into like, so do you get like three points for being somebody's first choice? Two points for being somebody's second choice and one point for somebody's first choice for third choice. Is that how it works? It gets complicated. There's math. There's a lot of math, right? Because you know, well, we're we're down in the first choice category, but we're we're leaving in this. Like you're gonna have to add three different layers to pull. This all gets so much more. I don't want to hear this going into tax season, Greg. <laughs> well, you know what's gonna happen in the general election. If you're a Republican, uh, you vote for the Republican, and then your second choice is the Libertarian or somebody way uh, in a fringe party, and then if you even have to go to like the sixth or seventh pick, then you put the Democrat. And I'm sure the Democrats would do the same thing. So I'm not exactly sure what they would accomplish here. But basically what uh, Professor Azari is suggesting here is the delegates get chosen uh, from these uh, various preference primaries, but they aren't actually beholden to any particular candidate. And that frees them up to negotiate the best uh, ticket that could likely win the election. So the best way, she says, to avoid all this uh, rancor 
is to have delegates who were initially assigned to a candidate based on uh, how they did in the primary to then be able to abandon them without any repercussions. I'm sure that'll go over very well. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, the only minute uh, cautionary note I will make in our knocking this idea around like a pinata. Look, one of the reasons Trump got the ele- won the Republican primary in 2016 was he was up against 16 other candidates. And while he only got 46%, 45%, somewhere in there, everybody else was super duper, you know, divi- it was divided amongst the other candidates. We're seeing something of a similar phenomenon in this year's campaign with Bernie Sanders and all of the other non-openly socialist Democrats. This may be the new trend in American politics, where everybody and their brother chooses to run for president. And all of a sudden you end up with a pie that is split a whole bunch of different ways. And we don't want, we no longer have candidates winning a majority of delegates. We have candidates winning a plurality and that's, you know, then you end up with somebody who wasn't really the first choice of the minority. And maybe, maybe the majority really didn't like this guy, but he ended up with the most votes. So that's how they're going to end up. You know, it does make you yearn for smoke filled rooms. (laughs) It does make you yearn for party elders who have some good judgment about this to say, you know, who could say to the Jim Gilmores of the world, I'm sorry, you're not running for president. Uh, Tom Steyer, I'm sorry, no, nice tie. We love the plaid, but no, you're not running for president. And to narrow the field down to, a, you know, let's say five, six, seven, you, by the way, you look back from like the 70s to really the 19, really, actually to 2016, most year, maybe 2012, you'd say, you had about seven candidates run. Pat Schroeder ran in 1988 with seven other Democrats and they were called the Seven Dwarves. And eight candidates was considered a lot. And Greg, are we down to eight candidates yet? It used to be that if you were some no-name, you didn't run for president because one, you didn't want to finish with 1% or, or get knocked out before the voting started. And two, you, know, you just recognized you weren't ready to be president of the United States. Nobody steps from the House into the president of the United States or into the presidency for a long time. You don't, nobody just, just steps into this job. This isn't entry-level government. This is one of the toughest jobs in the entire world. But no, 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 no. We've just decided now everybody and their brother can show up because, hey, you can never end up with a you know, CNN contract like Andrew Yang just got. By the way, do you know, do you know the best part of Andrew Yang's uh, uh, new gig on CNN, Greg? What's that? CNN's finally going to have to ask him some questions. <laughs> now, the smoke-filled room, I guess it would have to be uh, eco-friendly now, so not even vaping, but uh, <laughs> just uh, – bo- It's all marijuana. It's <laughs> just bottles of water and, and marijuana. It's very relaxed, except they keep – they say they haven't reached a decision. They just want more munchies. <laughs> So this is part of a series, as our exit point here uh, in the Washington Post. The whole series is entitled How to Fix the Primary Process. Azari wrote another piece about entirely switching to preference primary. So that's clearly her big, uh, her big push here. Two other issues, though. One by a woman named Christina Greer. Forget Iowa. Georgia should be the first state to vote. And my personal favorite from Martin O'Malley. Want to fix the presidential primaries? Revive the fairness and equal time doctrines. So... Uh, <laughs> Okay. Lots of good ideas. I realize we're running long. Let's observe, Greg. A couple of years back, I decided to completely rejigger the primary schedule to try to, to start with the smallest ones and end with the biggest ones. And the first thing is that that would actually keep the race relatively competitive for as long a stretch. Because, you know, if you lost Delaware, okay, you know, you're, you're okay. You, you can still keep going on. Um, but also small states are traditionally cheaper to run in. Delaware has only three counties. So, you know, you can, you can, you can drive around it all pretty easily. Uh, Rhode Island, you know, you don't, you're not going to spend a lot of time in private jets going from one place to another in Rhode Island. But by the way, I believe the fir- one of the first primaries under this schedule that I'd laid out, Greg, was going to be Hawaii. Now, Greg, would you rather go out and cover a caucus in Iowa or would you rather cover primaries in Hawaii in the middle of winter? 
I would just, if I was a candidate, I would just camp out in Hawaii and almost just go through the motions of running and then uh, live there for a few months. And then when you get crushed, well, well, I guess it didn't work out. Donors, your money was well spent. (laughs) Oh, Jim, I know you're excited about the debate tonight. It's going to be very, very, very exciting. Uh, Bloomberg on the stage. Yay. All right. We'll uh, talk about it tomorrow, I'm sure. We will see you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.